How many of you use DoorDash by a show of hands? I'm not going to, you don't have to be embarrassed. Okay, we have three. How many of you use Postmates? We have Postmates people. We have Uber Eats people. How many of you refuse to use the apps at all together? Okay, good. Mm, yes, Rage Against the Machine. So, um, I use all of them, and I think one of our credit cards has like a fancy thing where we get free DoorDash deliveries, which doesn't mean anything, because DoorDash is, am is amazing, especially at hidden fees. Check out this royalty that I found this on the internet, the, and um, in, this, in this particular thing, this person ordered a signature milk tea for $6.50, okay? The subtotal six fifty. The regulatory response fee is one fifty. The tax was forty six. The delivery fee was seven ninety nine. Uh, the service fee, which what is that? A ninety eight cents two fifty for a smaller fee in the dash or tip three. So they pay twenty two dollars and ninety three cents for a six dollar milk tea. What do you think? Is that a good deal? Bad deal? Not so good. So DoorDash is amazing at hidden fees. There's not a real a lot of truth happening when you order things from. DoorDash some of the time. This also happens with Uber Eats and some of the other people. This also happens in real estate. Now, some of you who are inexperienced with real estate or are experienced with real estate, you would know this even more. One of the mistakes that prospective home buyers make is they do not consider the hidden costs when purchasing a home. Uh, some of you have purchased a home and you're aware all of a sudden, like the sticker price is not actually always the real price. And sometimes if you're really inexperienced, you only think about the monthly payment. You don't consider the down payment. You don't consider if it's an adjustable rate mortgage, which is why our country got into a bunch of trouble a bunch of years ago because everyone had arms and someone bet against them. You ever see the movie The Big Short? That's all people not understanding the kind of products they were purchasing when it came to their payments. And sometimes people will use a Zillow calculator, which doesn't actually include the costs, the true costs of owning a home. HOA fees, you got to furnish the home. Sometimes people max out their budget on what they buy and they sit around on their empty carpet because they can't afford furniture and stuff like that. And, they can, and there's also upkeep and maintenance. We own a property in Ohio and we had to replace the entire bathroom recently because it started flooding into the kitchen. We had to be prepared for that. We had the cash on hand because we were prepared for that. And um, that wasn't a brag. It was just like literally we have an account that has cash in it Then we were able to pay off and, and have the thing replaced and our tenants didn't get upset with that. So just so I want to show you a picture. Here's the most expensive piece of property for sale in Santa Monica. It's going for 14 million nine hundred ninety-five thousand seven bedrooms and this is right down the street from us. Um, what do you think? Should we? So I, see it looks pretty good, right? I mean, if you had this, then you would be happy if you had a house like this. Um, then you would actually be happy. But I did, I ran the uh, Zillow numbers for it. So the, uh, it's 94000 a month, it looks like. 75 k for the principal. Property tax is 15000 a month. Um, what's that? No, is that a year? No, I don't know about that. Because that's the monthly payment. Anyway, and you also you need that down payment of 299900s, all the zeros after that. And your estimated closing costs around six hundred k. Uh, which is awesome. So, you know, there's hidden costs in even owning a home like this. Now, the, uh, that picture of uh, that property, I was thinking about it. It got me thinking of how maybe it's a nice piece of property or maybe it's an ugly design. I'm not sure. But we, I just wanted to point out, and this has nothing to do with my sermon, we actually have an architect here in the room with us. Um, what do you think of that original design that I showed you? What do you think, man? Yes or no? Thumbs up, thumbs down. It's, uh, <laughs> did you design it? Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> you didn't design it. But actually, if you could go back to the next one, or there's another one after this. Uh, this is um, 
This is Marco's company called Alloy. Here's some of the things that he's designed. Um, and if you're in the market, he's back there, and he's here with his director of marketing. <laughs> Michelle. <laughs> Michelle, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, just a shout out to him. So in, if you ever have real estate or architectural questions, uh, uh, I am your man. I can pass you through it. Or you can connect with Marcos in the back. But, um, you know, he is fully aware of those things. I just, that has nothing to do with my talk. I just wanted to mention that he does that for a living. Anyway, so here's my, here's my point. Here's my point. Sometimes when we buy things, whether it's a home or we buy a milk tea, Sometimes it feels like we're not getting the truth about what we're buying. Sometimes it feels like things are hidden. And I think when it comes to the, the difference between good and great salespeople and good and great organizations are the people that know how to speak the truth and establish rapport and trust because they're being open and honest and upfront about what's happening. The greatest salespeople, the greatest companies in the world, especially in the United States, they're great and they're persuasive because they're clear, because they're upfront. There's no hidden costs. They let you know what's real. Now, they're asking you to give something in return. Usually, they're trying to make a transaction, but they're doing so in a way that makes you feel confident because they've been upfront about what it really costs. Now, this morning, I want to talk about Jesus, not as preacher, not as healer, not as uh, teacher, teacher, preacher, whatever you want to call healer. But what I want to talk to you about today, about Jesus, is Jesus as truth-teller. And with Jesus, what we see in his life is that there's no hidden fees. There's no secrets. There's, in, there's truth in his marketing, if you even want to call it that. His brand is very true. And so, in one of the Gospels, Luke, Luke wrote about Jesus. In chapter 14, Luke depicts Jesus. He tells a story of Jesus telling some miracles, or Jesus giving some miracles. He's healing everybody, and the whole world is literally lined up to receive their miracle. He's going into towns, and he's going to what would be the equivalent of a first century hospital, and he's clearing it out. And all the doctors are like, where's all the sick people? And they're like, JC did it. And he cleared them all out. So everyone's getting healed, and for a while, Jesus is okay with the crowds following him. But he decides at some point, he wants to let them know that he's not just there for their entertainment. He's not there for their entertainment. And so what does Jesus do? Well, in true Jesus fashion, he provokes them. And this is what he says in Luke chapter 14. He says, uh, Luke writes, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whew. Truth in marketing, no hidden fees, upfront costs. He lets the people know. Jesus invites his followers, if they want to follow him, they have to give up everything. How much of everything? Well, everything. And he tells the massive crowd that they have to hate their mother and father and family, even their own lives, if they want to follow him. They have to even hate their own lives. And so what do people do? In the story, a lot of people pack up and they go home. They're like, this isn't worth it. Hate? 
your own family? Now the burning question in your mind should be, why would Jesus use the word hate? What does Jesus mean when he uses the word hate? Does Jesus condone hate? Is this the very first hate speech? Did Jesus write the very first hate speech of all time? Now, when we read the words of Jesus, I find that people who read this, does, does Jesus actually mean that we should hate people? It's a very difficult uh, passage or scripture to understand. The concept of hating your own family. <clears throat> and so when Jesus wrote, you need to hate your family, does this mean when you become a follower of Jesus, do you need to call your mother and say, Mom, I'm a follower of Jesus now, and is, is Dad nearby? Okay, just put us on speaker. Uh, I hate you. And just let Dad know that I hate him too because I'm a Jesus follower. I hate you guys. I won't see you at Christmas because I'll be following Jesus. No, that's not what is meant here. If that was true, that, was, that would be, that'd be contradictory to a number of things that Jesus said in other parts of his life. Jesus doesn't condone that kind of behavior. In fact, the kind of behavior that says you should hate your family and your friends in order to follow a higher calling we have a name for that. Do you know what that name is? It's called a cult. And Jesus wasn't forming a cult. Jesus was doing something different. Obviously, hating your family would contradict what he said in other teachings about, about love. So why use such strong language? Well, here's the secret. Well, back in this time, if you were to follow a rabbi without your family's blessing, it would have been like you had done something to show that you hate your family. And so a decision to follow Jesus would have easily been interpreted uh, as turning your back on your family and completely walking away from them and having nothing to do with them. So if that's the context, if that's what is meant by that colloquialism, what is Jesus actually saying here? He's saying following Jesus will disrupt your life. Following Jesus is going to disrupt your life. And in this moment, Jesus is being honest with the crowd, truth and marketing, about what it's going to cost if you want to follow him. In the same way, Jesus is honest with you and me. If you follow Jesus, your mom or your dad might not approve. If you follow Jesus, your sister might think you're a little wacky. If you follow Jesus, your significant other, your boyfriend or girlfriend may not understand it and they may break up with you, especially around Christian ethics around sex and morality. You might lose friends. People might talk behind your back. And at work, things might not go well for you. You might be passed over for promotions because you don't reflect what the organization things you need to reflect. And even more accurately, I don't think there's a lot of vindictive employers out there, but there, I mean, there's bad employers. Uh, there's bad employers and there's good employers. Uh, but um, more accurately, sometimes organizations just don't understand you. And how can they support a faith or a person of something that they just don't understand? And so the best way to interpret what Jesus is saying when he uses the word hate it isn't to have intense feelings of hostility towards the people that you love the most, which would contradict other things that he said. Uh, but the most accurate way to understand what Jesus is trying to say here is that Jesus invites us to love him more. To love him more. 
Quickly, in the next five seconds, take an assessment of your life. You have things that you love. You have competing loves. Lots of different com things competing in your life for your attention and for your affection and for your love. Of course, there's Jesus. Why would you be here at Sunday morning at 10 a.m.? There's Jesus. But there's your spouse. There's your soon-to-be spouse. There's your boyfriend. There's your girlfriend. There's your romantic interest. If you're not interested, there's children, career, family, dreams. And as you know, you just can't get rid of all those things in your life. It's not like Jesus is asking you to become a monk at a monastery and move into like some building and wear the long robes with the, with the rope and make cheese and beer get all fat and giggly. That's not in this particular passage. You can't get rid of those things. He's just pointing out that he just doesn't want to be one of your loves. He's also pointing out that he isn't satisfied with being even the first among equals. He's saying that, here's what, here's what we need to understand. What he's saying, he's saying that before everything, before decisions are made, before purchases are made, before uh, political affiliations are made, before marriage vows are taken, he's wanting to be the primary organizing, undergirding foundation from which all priorities are decided and decisions are made. Okay, do you follow what I'm saying here? There's like a preeminent desire where, or filter through which our decisions are made and the choices are made through our lives. And so the way of Jesus informs almost everything that our lives touch. It's not like we have Jesus over here, money over here, relationships over here. It's Jesus, and through that relationship, we understand and know who we are as people. So the way of Jesus informs our finances, what we give, what we save, what we spend, the way of Jesus informs our love life, what we do and what we don't do in terms of our love life. The way of Jesus actually informs our political views and our political culture and also our engagement, what's an appropriate and inappropriate engagement as Jesus followers in the political realm. And the way of Jesus actually informs what we consume, how much we consume, and who we consume it with. The way of Jesus touches almost every area of our life. And right now, what I want to do is provide you with a few diagnostic questions that can actually help you determine to determine <clears throat> if Jesus is the primary person, the primary principle organizing your life. And the reason I'm telling you these things is because I thought of them and they were painful for me as I ran my own life through it. And I want to project that pain onto you now. <laughs> because Jesus says you got to do it, you got to give up everything. I think this is what he means. First question, for what do you sacrifice your money? This isn't a talk about tithing, but it is important. You know, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Which means what you spend, what you save for, and how much you give away, that is the thing that actually reveals, reveals the true condition of your heart. It actually reveals what's most important in your life. Let me put it this way. If we were to conduct an audit, and I would say, show me your bank statement. I say this, show me your bank statement, and I'll show you what's number one in your life. Your bank statement, what you spend or what you don't spend, 
what you save or what you don't save, what you give and what you don't give, says more about you uh, sometimes than, the, than, than the, the feelings of positivity towards God. It actually reveals what you're actually invested in. You know, as a pastor and as a person that's been around church people for a real long time, um, I've never met so many theologians and so many Old Testament scholars, except when it comes to three areas, our freedom, our bodies, and our money. All of a sudden, boom. <laughs> uh, people get really intense, and they get really passionate. And this is probably why Jesus talked about money so much. Uh, and what I'm saying is, is that sometimes our theological passion sometimes reveals uh, uh, how... Uh, our theological passion and how we think about money and our theological passion around money reveals more about us than we realize. You know, like if we're really passionate about something, oftentimes you go, why are you so passionate about it? What's in it for you? What's the personal angle? And what I'm saying here is the thing that I always get pushback on the most or people want to debate with me about is generally money in our bodies. And the reason they do is because there's something that they want in the conversation. And sometimes these debates, these scholarly debates, they're actually, when they're talking to me, they actually just reveal, they're revealing the true desires of their heart. So here's how this plays out. Now, spending money is not wrong, and saving money is a very good thing. The Bible even talks about how we should save our money. But here's where it goes sideways. When it comes to saving and spending, sometimes people, not in this room, of course, but other people create justifications why they don't need to be generous, okay? And so they'll say things like, well, I don't have any money to spare. I spent it all. That's a justification. Another justification will be, well, I'm saving up for something, and it's important, therefore I don't have to. Or they do a delay thing. They go, I don't need to be generous now. I'm going to wait till I have more financial cushion, and then I'll make up for it and start being generous, which I have found historically in my entire life that's never actually comes through. People never, when they delay, they never actually come through with it. And sometimes our, our, our justifications become theological, right? Does a tithe actually mean 10%? And so here's what I'm getting at, because again, this is not a tithing talk, and I can see the shifting in the room. Uh, they're like, is he just going to drill us here? Like, all of a sudden, Christians become Old Testament, New Testament theologians and experts, and they start off by saying, well, personally, when it comes to money, I believe that, and then they fill, they fill in the blank with what they believe. And surprisingly, it's just so surprising, surprise, surprise, it turns out that their personal perspective on giving and tithing and saving and spending it somehow miraculously grants them some sort of divine exception. That they don't have to do the things that other people are required to do. That they're somehow, they've been granted some sort of divine immunity from financial generosity. It's like amazing the justifications I've heard for exemption. But basically, because money is such an anxious subject, I can see it on your faces, it's an anxious subject, I get that. People will do this. 
People will bend and they'll twist the scriptures to fit what they needed to fit in order to do what they already had planned to do. You see, emotionally, they're coming from the starting place. I'm going to do what I want to do. And look, all of a sudden, I'm a theological expert on giving. Everyone else should give because I really like coming to this church. Or I really, everyone should give to charity water because clean water is important. Not me. I'm saving. Or I spent it all. Or whatever personal theological justification you come up with. And so what I'm getting at here, if you haven't figured it out, is this. Let me ask you a personal question. Are you attempting to bend the God of the universe to fit your will, to fit your personal point of view, or are you allowing the God of the universe to bend you? And when we look at the story we just read with Jesus, when he says, choose me first, make me primary, I am the primary organizing principle of your life. Do you allow that to be the filter through which you make decisions? Or do you play the justification game? Like you're an unlicensed lawyer operating in the state of California against the things God's inviting you to. How you answer that question reveals a lot about you and it reveals a lot about me, especially who we love the most. Question number two, what disappoints you? or frustrates you the most. Let me ask it this way. When things don't work out in your life, what do you do? How do you react? And do you react more than the appropriate amount? Hard truth. Sometimes we allow the disappointments we're experiencing to dictate and operate as a low-level anxiety in every area of our life. So, like, it controls our day. It controls our week. It controls our attitude. It controls how we treat each other. Disappointments we experience in the outside world can sometimes affect how we treat the people we love the most. And what I mean by that is we don't treat them the best because we're disappointed about other things. And what I'm getting at here is that what we care about the most, when we're overly disappointed, it's actually revealing. It's symptomatic. It's revealing what we truly care about. Listen, if you find yourself very disappointed or you find yourself frustrated more than the normal amount which life should allow, it could very well be an indication that the thing you're disappointed about is a competing affection that is meant for Jesus alone. Now I want to make a suggestion to you and I hope you're open to it. Today would be a great day to do this. You're probably going to be with friends or family at some point today. One of the ways that you can assess yourself to understand and get at the true passion of your heart is to ask somebody you trust, a friend, a neighbor, a spouse, a significant other, somebody that you trust. It could be a coworker, but who would trust them? A coworker. And what I want you to do is I want you to ask that friend or that family member that to go ask them, what disappoints you? Like, no, don't go to them and go, um, hey, I want to meet with you. How have I disappointed you in the last year? <laughs> That's not what I'm asking. Ask them, hey, what do you think disappoints me? Like, what do you think disappoints me? What do you think I'm most upset? When, when do I get most upset? Or when do I get most excited? When do I get most upset, Nikki? What, 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 what if, what, when, when is it that really drives me? And what you do after you ask it, you sit back and you listen. 
And sometimes the results are surprising because sometimes the thing we think is projected to the world is not the thing that everybody sees. And when you ask that friend or trusted person to step in, they're holding up a mirror and they're saying, here's what you actually look like. Here's what I think disappoints you. And what will emerge could be surprising. It could be that your organizing principle in your life is your work. And when things don't go well, how do you respond? Is it something, do you live and die by what the boss says? It could be political issues that disappoint you. You are deeply affected by what the former president tweets. Someone might say that to you. Um, is it a dip in the stock market? Is it a dip in your finances? Um, and after you ask them, like I said, sit back and wait for them just to see what they say. And the answer they give you might reveal that something might be out of order in your life. Our disappointments are very telling. So those are the two questions I wanted to tell you. But So Jesus gives this little speech, and he's like, hate them all. And we already know what he means by that. Um, and the disciples come to him, and they're like, Jesus, this is not going well. We're trying to build an organization here, Jesus. And you're running around giving this little hate speech, and you're telling people to hate their families. And I got to tell you, this isn't good for business. In fact, we've lost two-thirds of our crowd. You're not you're not doing this right. And he laughs. It's not in the scriptures. I made that up. But he's probably like, ha ha. And um, we do get the impression that he doesn't care. Jesus doesn't care. He doesn't seem to be interested. He doesn't care about any of that. He doesn't care about the size of the crowd. He doesn't care about the wow factor. And because success for Jesus is when people do this. Success for Jesus is when people engage their wills and commit to intimacy with him. And so Jesus, recognizing that he's already cut the audience down by two-thirds, he provides them a framework for what they should do next. Basically, he looks out at the dwindling crowd. He's like, good, you've passed the first test. Now, let me tell you what this is actually going to cost you. I want to level with you one more time. Remember, honesty, upfront, truth-teller truth in marketing. Here's what this is actually going to cost. You've passed the first test. Here's the real, now here's the bill. Here's what this is going to cost. He gives us a story. He says, suppose one of you wants to be a builder. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. When Nikki and I and Marin moved in, uh, from Ohio to California in 2015, we had to find a place to live. We had considered an RV and homelessness, but quickly decided against it. And we looked high and low all the way between uh, Santa Monica uh, Boulevard and Wilshire. And we did this one look down in Venice, and we were like, nope. Not doing that. And after looking at about 20 places in two days, we eventually picked the place that we have now where we continue to live today. If you haven't been over, we'd love to have you over. Um, when we get our bathroom fixed, it's currently out of commission. <laughs> it's been bad. We've been living in the same location for almost eight years. And when we were hunting 
for this place to live and looking for a place to move into. We set a budget. And we had to assess what we could afford and what we could not afford. And we had to assess what would be good for us and what would be responsible. And when we were making a decision, we took into consideration different scenarios, which included one of us being out of work, one of us getting promotions, one of us doing really well in a matter of seven years. We had to include pay increases, and we also had to uh, run scenarios in case things didn't work out the way we had planned. And so eventually, we, through that rubric, we developed a plan and we picked a place that was well within our budget and we chose not to max out. But you and I both know not everyone makes decisions in that kind of calculated way. Some people max out their budgets when it comes to renting. Some people max out their budgets when it comes to purchasing a car or clothes or purchasing real estate. And they don't really consider the cost behind the cost. And their eyes get all excited when they see, oh, one month rent free or, you know, this no money down, no payments for this or that or other, and only interest payments for the first year. They don't think through the additional costs and they don't think through the ramifications of situations that might change in their personal life. And um, they don't think about the financial climate. They don't think about the, the potential, like we shouldn't worry about all these things, but they don't think through some of those things. And down the road, they're completely surprised when personal life circumstances change and they can't do what they want to do. And guess what? They feel embarrassed. One of my favorite things to watch on TikTok is when someone gets their car repossessed. I don't know why, but uh, the algo knows me. And so um, I watched this other day. This guy had an axe. And he's trying to break the chain that connects to the car that the car is being towed away. And you just look at him. And you're like, first of all, he has an axe. That's awesome. But second of all, you look at him and you're like, he's embarrassed. He's ashamed. Now, I don't know the personal circumstances of, or if you've ever had a car repossessed or anything. And there's lots that go with that. But in his, this moment with this guy, this dude was embarrassed. There was something that he missed in not counting the cost. Jesus doesn't mince words. Jesus is doing everyone a favor. He's saying, look, I'm doing you a favor. Count the cost now. Don't wait till later. Look, I don't know what kind of gospel invitation you received when you came to know Jesus. I don't know what it took for you to say that I'm a Christian. And I don't know how you got into your relationship with Jesus. I know some of your stories, but I don't know all of your stories. But let me tell you, if you haven't heard it enough today... Following Jesus is going to cost you everything. So let me ask you, is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? My prayer for me this past week, and my prayer for you, is that the Holy Spirit would disrupt you. That he would disrupt your finances. That he would disrupt your relationships that he would disrupt your romantic interest, that he would disrupt your allegiances to your political leaders and your allegiances to your political beliefs, that he would disrupt your longtime loyalties to your friends and to your family, and he will disrupt whatever is competing in your life just to give you the opportunity to choose him. And would you do that? Would you be open to allowing the Spirit of God to actually 
change your choices, your relationships, how you interact with the whole world. Now, Jesus invites us to do it because he says it's worth it. And so um, that's how Jesus left the situation and that's how I'm going to leave you. You've got to decide, is it worth it?